Hello, my name is Ben Burrell and welcome back to Bob Dylan Album by Album, a podcast that takes an in-depth look at each Bob Dylan studio recording record by record. Welcome to season three. Thank you very much for returning to the podcast. What a joy it is to be back. There's some great episodes coming up this season. Actually, I think some of the best episodes I have ever done on this podcast. So look forward to them and thank you very much, as I say, for returning to the podcast. Um, I had loads of messages between seasons. They are so appreciated. Thank you. I'm sorry I can't get back to everyone but thank you for your messages nonetheless and I had quite a few people asking how they can support the podcast I hadn't really set up anything like that up until now but um, I think the best thing to do is um, if you want to support the podcast then you can go on to a website called buy me a coffee which is literally where you can buy people you like that create things that you enjoy a coffee um, so this is quite apt. I get through sort of quite a bit of coffee a week making the episodes because they're around about 4,000-ish words and the edit time is about three hours. So if you want to buy a coffee and support the podcast, you can do that. The link to my section of the Buy Me A Coffee website is in the podcast description and also on our social media profiles as well. You can find us on uh, both Instagram and Twitter at Bob Dylan Podcast. So on with episode one of season three and we're looking at a slightly strange, imperfect but still good album. This is 19. 1964's Another Side of Bob Dylan. I woke in the morning wondering where I'd worn out. I woke in the morning wondering where I'd worn out. With Dylan's stock on the rise after a couple of classic albums, Columbia, his label, were keen for him to release another record. So on the 9th of June 1964, he once again entered Columbia's Studio A with producer Tom Wilson. And it's Dylan doing everything again. He plays all the instruments. And there's more than enough evidence to suggest he was getting pretty loaded during the sessions too. The whole album was cut that night as they bagged 14 original compositions, 11 of which were chosen for the final album. The three that were ultimately rejected were Denise Denise, Mama You Been On My Mind and a little song called Mr Tambourine Man. Nat Hentoff, the American historian and music critic, was present at the session and notes Wilson's anxiety at doing the whole album in one go. He says the session started at 7 o'clock. He remembers at 5 to 7, Dylan walking into the studio carrying a battered guitar case. He had dark glasses on and his hair was dark blonde and curly and obviously had not been cut for some weeks. He was dressed in blue jeans, a black jersey and desert boots. I'm not quite sure why desert boots is important, but it just is. He goes on to detail Dylan's speech at the start of the recording. He says, we're going to make a good one tonight. And then he turns to Wilson and says, I promise. He also says that there aren't any finger-pointing songs on this album. Those records I've already made, I'll stand behind them, but some of that was just jumping into the scene to be heard, and a lot of it was because I didn't see anyone else doing that kind of thing. Now, a lot of people are doing finger-pointing songs. And he's right, there are no finger-pointing songs, as he calls them here. It's interesting, though, that he set out with an agenda for the record and he doesn't shy away from it. When we last heard from Dylan, it was a jittery goodbye to his protest singer persona with the previous album's closing track, Restless Farewell. That whole record was bleak and tense and often joyless. On this album, though, things are much more carefree and even, whisper it, fun. The bar is set with opener All I Really Want To Do. Whilst the sonics are similar to the times they are changing songs, its disposition couldn't be more different. No, and I ain't looking to fight with you, frighten you, or uptighten you, drag you down or drain you down, chain you down or bring you down. All I really want to do 
be friends with you. Everything here is on the lighter side of things, from the rambling rhymes to the outrageous repeated notes on a titular line to the fact that Dylan even stifles a laugh 54 seconds in. It all rams home the point there's a good time to be had here. Dylan even tells us on the third verse that he doesn't want to analyse before we get yet more laughter and an even more audacious note towards the end of the song that verges on the ridiculous. Looking for you to feel like me, see like me, or be like me. All I really want to do is baby be friends with you. This song, in my mind, comes as part of a pair with the album's closing track, It Ain't Me Babe. Both are alternative love songs. On that final track, Dylan tells his love to leave him because he will only let her down. Here, though, he's craving for an uncomplicated relationship. It's generally accepted he's referring to his time with Susie Rotolo here, a recurring theme on this album. But there's also a nod to the relationship between Dylan and his audience and his very public shedding of his former finger-pointing tunes. He sings lyrics saying he doesn't want to simplify you, classify you, deny, defy or crucify you. He's not looking for answers or justice here. He's just making a record. Simplify you, classify you, deny, defy or crucify you. It really is the perfect opening track for this album. It basically becomes the record's prologue. It embodies the theme and tone that's present throughout, something that is front and centre as well on track five, I Shall Be Free, number 10. Dylan rambles with what sounds like improvised lyrics that can only be described as off the wall. He stumbles across verses like, I've got a woman, she's so mean, she sticks my boots in the washing machine. And later we hear about him being in the nude and bubblegum being put in his food. I got a woman, she's so mean, she sticks my boots in the washing machine, sticks me with buckshot when I'm nude, puts bubblegum in my food, she's funny. What's my money? The fun in this song is not only present in the lyrics, as there's yet more laughter towards the end of the tune too. It's not the best song ever, but you do get the impression by this point, after having the weight of a mixed-up, confused world on his shoulders, songs like this needed to happen for Bob, for his own sanity. It's a similar story with Motorpsycho Nightmare, with its references to the classic Hitchcock thriller Psycho. The song is based around an almost caper tale of a character showing up at a farmhouse looking for a place to spend the night, only to be lured by the temptation of the farmer's daughter. The story starts when our narrator turns up at the farmhouse after a long day's travel looking for some rest, only to be greeted by the gun-toting farmer. I pounded on a farmhouse looking for a place to stay. I was mighty, mighty tired. I'd come a long, long way. I said, hey, hey, in there, is there anybody home? I was standing on the steps, feeling most alone. The farmer accuses our narrator of being a travelling salesman. However, our narrator manages to convince the farmer he is in fact a doctor and is offered a bed for the night, providing he stays away from his daughter. However, almost with a wink to the audience, the farmer's daughter, Rita, sneaks into our narrator's room, looking just like Tony Perkins, as Bob puts it. Another psycho reference, this time to Norman Bates. She invites our narrator to take a shower, but he declines, saying he's been through this movie before, which is, of course, a less-than-subtle hint to the film's infamous shower scene. She said, would you like to shake a shower? I'll show you up to the door. I said, oh, no, no, I've been through this movie before. The farmer now appears in the room, 
room and our narrator wanting to flee shouts out the most offensive thing he can think of. He says he likes Fidel Castro, which is obviously quite the thing to say in the US at the time of the album's release. Enraged, the farmer chases him off with gunshots, accusing him of being a, quote, commie rat. It's interesting that such themes like the Cold War and Castro, which were considered adult and were handled with such seriousness on other recordings, here on this album just form a footnote in a comical tale. Later, our narrator escapes and Rita gets a job in a motel whilst our farmer lies in wait for our narrator, hoping to turn him into the FBI. At the song's conclusion, Bob sings, he still waits for me, constant on the sly, he wants to turn me in to the FBI. He still waits for me, constant on the sly, he wants to turn me in to the FBI. Me, I romp and stomping, thankful as I romp, without freedom of speech, I might be in the swamp. Bob stumbling over those words gives us yet another indication that he might have been getting pretty loaded during these sessions. And that final line about the swamp is yet another reference to Psycho. The song as a whole, once again, isn't the best and does pale into insignificance compared to Dylan's other story songs, like The Ballad of Hollis Brown, for example. But unlike that, this is more footloose and fancy-free. This sounds like an anecdote from an evening with Bob Dylan rather than a complex moral tale. Whilst fun and being a little more breezy is a huge theme on this album, the other overriding theme of the record is it's just much more personal in nature. In fact, some of these songs are amongst Bob's most personal ever. To Ramona, for example, is a folk waltz that has a Mexican top line that Dylan pulls off pretty well. Bob takes his musical cues from country singer Rex Griffin and reworks them into a love letter, apparently, about Joan Baez. There's a couple of sources mentioning that Dylan used to call by as Ramona, which kind of makes sense when you look at their relationship and you look at the dates this song was written and released in. However, whether it is about her or not, we probably won't ever know. But it does sound like a very personal song. It's not a love story like Boots of Spanish Leather, for example. It's much more descriptive than that. It's more focused. There's just more details about an actual person. This is a letter directed to someone. Dylan croons, your cracked country lips, I still wish to kiss. Your cracked country lips, I still wish to kiss, has to be by the strength of your skin. The love songs on this album are just more specific and personalised than a lot of other Dylan love songs. Things get even more personal on track 10, Ballad in Plain D, as Dylan once again details his relationship with Susie. They met in July 1961 at a Riverside Church folk concert where Dylan was performing. She was 17 and he was 20, and in Chronicles Volume 1, he says, Right from the start, I couldn't take my eyes off of her. She was the most exotic thing I'd ever seen. She was fair-skinned and golden-haired, full-blooded Italian. She would, of course, go on to inspire Dylan, appear on the freewheeling front cover, and become a face of the 60s in her own right. By 1964, though, the relationship was over, and Dylan doesn't shy away from the heartbreak. It's unusual, as the bitterness found in this breakup song isn't aimed at a former lover, but in fact, her sister. Dylan is almost nothing but complimentary to Susie. In the opening lines, you could mistake this for a love song from a husband celebrating his wife of many years as he sings, I once loved a girl, her skin it was bronze, with the innocence of a lamb, she was gentle like a fawn. I once loved a girl, her skin it was bronze. With the innocence of a lamb, she was gentle like a fawn. 
Things quickly get complicated, though, as Bob introduces her sister early on into the song's 8 minutes and 17 seconds runtime. He sings, In a young summer's youth I stole her away from her mother and sister, though close did they stay. Susie's sister Carla had obviously upset Dylan as he then spends the better part of the rest of the song lambasting her almost with every verse. It starts on the third verse with, Of the two sisters I loved the young. With sensitive instincts, she was the creative one, the constant scrapegoat she was easily undone by the jealousy of others around her. It then peaks with, for her parasite sister, I had no respect. Ah, the two sisters, I loved the young. With sensitive instincts, she was the creative one. Their constant scrapegoat, she was easily undone By the jealousy of others around her For her parasite sister, I had no respect Bound by her boredom, her pride to protect. Bob is clearly placing the blame for the breakdown of the relationship on Carla, but he also bears the brunt too. He notes his own shortcomings over two verses as he sings, Myself for what I did, I cannot be excused. The changes I was going through can't even be used. For the lies that I told her in hopes not to lose, the could-be dream lover of my lifetime. There's a hint to Bob's growing celebrity with that line of changes I was going through. And then at the end, we hear words about the comfort of a long-term relationship with love's false security. The whole thing culminates with a slagging match between Carla and Dylan, or as he puts it, a screaming battleground. With the closing lines, we hear the relationship is now over and we're left with poignant verses about not being able to say sorry and hoping that Susie's next lover appreciates her. Before at the very end, we hear heartbreaking lyrics about prisoners asking what freedom is like, only for Dylan to say after the events of the song, he feels more locked up than they do. Ah, my friends from the prison, they ask unto me How good, how good does it feel to be free? And I answer them most mysteriously. Are birds free from the chains of the skyway? This is an incredibly personal song, not usually Dylan's style in song nor person. I've always found it quite incredible that a man such as Bob, who's had a life like he has, has done such an amazing job of keeping his private life private, for the most part. Of course, there's a lot of NDAs and out-of-court settlements involved, but in some cases we didn't know about marriages or even children until years later which kind of makes this song even more fascinating. He's laying an iconic relationship bare with little smoke and mirrors for us to hear all about. Importantly, though, it never comes off as corny or like he's trying to get one over the people involved. Carla might disagree, of course. Unsurprisingly, and this is in keeping with his later stern control over his private life, Dylan regrets the song. He's quoted as saying, I look back at that particular one and of all the songs I've written, I think maybe I could have left that alone. 
In an interview with People magazine, Susie sounded a forgiving note. She says, People have asked me how I felt about those songs that were bitter, like Ballad in Plain D. I never felt hurt by them. I understood what he was doing. It was the end of something, and we were both hurt and bitter. It was his outlet. That was his art, his exorcism. It was healthy. On track eight, my back pages, we're back onto the lighter side of things. Crimson flames tied through my ears Rolling high and mighty traps Interestingly, that theme running throughout the record of being a little lighter and a little more breezy is no longer just a theme here. In a postmodern meta moment, it actually becomes the song's subject matter. Repeatedly, Dylan tells us I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Meaning back then, on those previous records, I concern myself with adult worries, adult themes. Here, though, I'm cutting loose. Older then, I'm younger than that now. This is one of my favourite tracks on the album. It's pretty rough like all the songs here, but it has a soul and an honesty about it that you just cannot manufacture. Originally titled Ancient Memories, this is one of the last songs to be written for the record and the last to be recorded. It almost acts as a companion piece to Restless Farewell. On that track, Dylan told us his contempt for the protest song that was once his trademark. It was Dylan murdering his past. Here, though, it feels like we're getting the post-mortem. He pours over his early work, bemoaning himself for his naivety when discussing issues in his songs. He highlights his naive, idealistic view of a stark contrast between right and wrong with no grey areas as he sings lyrics like Lies that life is black and white and the mention of romantic facts. Lies that life is black and white Spoke for my skull I dreamed Tears foundationed deep somehow. Ah, but I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. That romantic facts line doesn't feel a million miles away from today's idea of fake news. Whilst the song has undeniable quality, it, like all the tracks on the album, suffers somewhat due to the album's recording process. One long session is never going to make for a polished record, and whilst it never falls into the trap of sounding like a collection of demos, you sometimes get the feeling of unfulfilled potential. There is an argument to say the record has a ramshackle style that is quite enjoyable, like you're hearing a Dylan session unfold in front of your very ears. Especially when on several songs, most notably Ballad in Plain D and here on my back pages, Bob sounds unsure of the chord structure. Listen to the ever so slight mess up two and a half minutes in. Ah, but I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. Also, he uses the chords G, G6 and G7 a lot on this album. It becomes his crutch. It features in To Ramona, My Back Pages, I Don't Believe You and Ballad in Plain D. The genesis of these songs appear to have come from the same idea repeatedly. You don't feel like this was the most planned or considered record of all time, but then with Dylan, it rarely is. However, there is of course much to enjoy here. It Ain't Me Babe is a bona fide early Dylan classic. It again sounds personal and again is apparently about Susie. He apparently began writing the song during a visit to Italy in 1963 while she was studying there. 
But just like I mentioned before, it's not really a love song. In fact, it's an anti-love song. Dylan asks a lover to leave him as he can't offer her the love she needs. He sings, I will only let you down. You say you're looking for someone who will promise never to part. Someone to close his eyes for you. Someone to close his heart. Someone who will die and more. But it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for. I'm not the one you want, babe. I'll only let you down. I'm a particular fan of the song's opening verse. The words just seem to flow so well. Bob almost yells, go away from my window, leave at your own chosen speed. I'm not the one you want, babe, I'm not the one you need. You say you're looking for someone never weak but always strong to protect and defend you whether you're right or wrong. Someone to open each and every door, but it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for. According to a reporter for The Times who saw Dylan perform a song for the first time in May 1964 at the Royal Festival Hall, the chorus of No, No, No is a parody of the Beatles' Yeah, Yeah, Yeah from She Loves You. I love that this is the final track on the album. Not only do I like it when one of the best songs on a record closes it, but I also like it when the closer concludes the album's narrative, and here it nicely finishes off the record's objective of ditching Bob's former protest singer persona. Whilst love is obviously the subject of the song, it's also Dylan putting a final nail into the coffin, addressing the folk scene, saying, I'm not your messiah, it's not me, I'm not the one you're looking for. Whilst Bob spends the majority of the record ramming home this change, it would appear he can't help himself get a little mixed up in politics. Track 4, Chimes of Freedom, was apparently written as a reflection on the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. Bob insisted the song wasn't about Kennedy, but it does closely follow lines of poems he wrote in the aftermath of the event. Folk singer Dave Van Ronk gave his account of the song's origins. He said, Bob heard me fooling around with one of my grandmother's favourite songs, The Chimes of Trinity, which is a sentimental ballad about Trinity Church. It went something like, tolling for the outcast, tolling for the gay, tolling for the something something. He made me sing it to him a few times until he had the gist of it, and then he reworked it into Chimes of Freedom. Her version was better. The song may not be overtly about JFK, it doesn't mention a president or a world-changing moment, but I still think it could have been inspired by those events. It's basically a song for the downtrodden, which, for the first time on this record, reminds me of the times they are changing. In fact, it's no surprise this was written directly after that album was finished, like Bob had one more thing to get out of his system before moving on. The song details a couple caught in a thunderstorm ducked inside the doorway, as Dylan tells us in the song's second line. He goes on to sing similar lines to the ones that Van Ronk mentioned. Tolling for the rebel, tolling for the rake, tolling for the luck, tolling for the outcast, burning constantly at stake. Tolling for the rebel, tolling for the rake, tolling for the luckless, they abandoned and forsaked Tolling for the outcast Burning constantly at stake And we gazed upon The chimes of freedom flashing 
It feels like Dylan is caught in a reflective mood about life and everything it holds, brought on by the thunderstorm spectacular show, which is possibly a metaphor for JFK's assassination. Huge world events like this have a habit of making us reevaluate life. By the end of the song, he's getting all misty-eyed like he's doing just that. He's getting misty-eyed, though, for people suffering in the universe. It feels like everything JFK embodied is in these lines, as Bob sings, tolling for the aching whose wounds cannot be nursed, for the countless confused, accused, misused, strung out and worse, and for every hung-up person in the whole wide universe, and we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. Tolling for the aching Whose wounds cannot be nursed Are the countless confused accused misused Strung out ones and worse And for every hung up person In the whole wide universe And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing Whilst this track does echo the times there are changing themes, it simultaneously moves away from them as well. Whilst yes, there is a hint, if a very minor one, to the political in this song, it also has a poetic, showy nature not found on the previous record's black and white realism. Lines like, even though a cloud's white curtain in a far off corner flared and the hypnotic splattered mist was slowly lifting, just wouldn't be found on the previous album and are a real marked change from those realistic protest lyrics. We're back onto the album's reoccurring message for track nine and one of my personal favourites, I Don't Believe You, She Acts Like We Never Have Met. I can't understand She let go of my hand And left me here facing the wall Sure, once again, this isn't one of the best songs Bob has ever written. It's a little pop gem full of heartbreak. What's not to like about that? It's upbeat ditty nature finds joy in Dylan being romantically shunned. And that's kind of this record in a nutshell. Bob's young and he's famous and he's got money in the bank. He's tired of being what people think he should be. This is his other side. It's a shame not every song on this album has this level of likability. You feel tunes like Black Crow Blues, for example, are the result of a one-session album. They might not have made the cut had the track listing been drawn from another two or three days recording. This also affects the other songs too. There's a really nice rough feeling to some of the tunes, but others feel like sketches of paintings that could have been masterpieces. It makes it all just a little unexciting, which thankfully is something that will be rectified during the rest of Dylan's output in this decade. Whilst another side of Bob Dylan probably isn't going to be your go-to album, it's an important transitional record. It moved us on from Dylan's protest singer and acted as a gateway to the classic trio of albums that would follow. It's a unique one-night stand, giving us a spontaneous sound that isn't without charm, if at times is a little underwhelming. So I can know if I am really real That is it for this episode. As I mentioned at the start, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so. There's a link in the podcast description of this episode. And also, if you uh, haven't done so already, then please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on both of those, at Bob Dylan Podcast. I'll see you next week for episode two on another transitional album. This time, we're looking at Together Through Life. 
Join me for that next week.